Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Chapter 7 will be our focus. I have just some of the verses there printed for you, but I will read uh, chapter 7 in its entirety. This morning at 6.15, I got a call from one of the elders of our sister church in Liberty, and their pastor was very sick. He'll be okay, but he has a stomach flu this morning, so I was able to call Pastor Nathan at 6.16, and he is there. He has preached, probably finished. He may even be here before the service is over. Their service is at 9.30. Then I thought, what a great opportunity for our newly ordained Brian to come and help assist in worship. And at 6.38, I got a call from Pastor Brian. He, too, was sick, and so praise God for Elder Joel Thomas helping us this morning, but... One of those mornings where everybody seems to uh, have something happening, and so I hope it doesn't happen to anyone else, at least not for the next 40 minutes. We are in the book of Hosea, this great prophecy that is of, uh, to the northern kingdom. Hosea, the only citizen of the northern kingdom to call, uh, called by God to prophesy to the northern portion uh, of what was used, what used to be a unified kingdom, but now these ten tribes had had split with the southern kingdom, Judah in the south, Israel or Ephraim or uh, otherwise known as Samaria, all those words meaning the same thing, the northern kingdom. And now Hosea is called in the most unusual way to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, to call them back to repentance. He has to marry a woman of adultery who was an adulteress before he married her, continued in that way after he married her, and he even had to go and redeem her out of slavery that she had gotten herself into and bring her back to himself, a perfect picture of God and us. And we're not Hosea. We're Gomer. That's the side of the analogy we take. So then, the first three chapters were about that analogy, and then chapter 4 all the way to chapter 14 is a huge indictment against the people of God for their sins. Laced throughout is the story or the recall of redemption that will come, but it's this constant reminder to us of what can happen in life to even his people. Now remember, the purpose of studying a prophecy like this is, is manifold. One is that we remember uh, when we see the sins of the people that we identify with that Christ is the only one who can answer these sins. And he's ultimately going to be the one who fulfills the need for righteousness that we have. We're reminded of Christ even reading in the Old Testament, Hosea. But also there is a solidarity we have across human history with other people. We can recognize their sins are not so different from our temptations and sins as well. So here now, as I read Hosea chapter 7, I'll actually start with the last verse of chapter 6, which should go with this portion. Hear God's holy word. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in. And the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts... Like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. 
All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Lord, again, as we are in the throes of this indictment against uh, Israel, is walking away from you as a corporate body. Lord, draw our attention to our own propensity and temptation to do likewise. Lord, it has been said somewhere that the smiles of the world are more dangerous than its frowns. Pray that we would see this as we see Ephraim having mixed with the people, having been assimilated by its culture. Lord, help us to see the reality, the very true possibility this is even for us in our day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you would know what I meant if I said the word Borg? Only a couple hands. You just don't want to admit it, right? The Borg. Let me tell you what the Borg are. Star Trek terminology. The Borg are depicted as as an amalgam of cybernetically enhanced humanoid drones of multiple species, organized as an interconnected collective with a hive mind, inhabiting a vast region of space with many planets and ships and sophisticated technology. They operate toward one single-minded purpose, to add the biological and technological distinctives of other species to their own in pursuit of perfection. This is achieved through forced assimilation, a process which transforms individuals and technology into Borg, enhancing individuals by adding synthetic components. Very interesting. In Star Trek, attempts to resist the Borg become one of the central themes, with many examples of successful resistance to the collective, but many others that are not so successful. Listen to a couple quotes that the Borg will cite to people they're about to assimilate. Strength is irrelevant. Resistance is futile. We wish to improve ourselves. We will add your biological and technological distinctives to our own. Your culture will adapt and service ours. That's a quote from one of the Borg. One of the better known Borg, John Luke Picard's alter ego, Logatus. I am Logatus Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life has been over. From this time forward, you will service us. Resistance is futile, he says. 
You will disarm your weapons and escort us to Sector 001. If you attempt to intervene, we will destroy you. The Borg. There's a picture in popular culture of a group that simply exists to take others into themselves and make them like themselves. And uh, they can look like a person, but they have some cybernetic part to them, and they are of the collective mind, and they actually begin to act as one consciousness. Now, I want you to think of that pop popular image and then consider the concept of assimilation for a moment. Cultural assimilation in particular. Defined this way, it's an intense process of consistent integration whereby members of an ethno-cultural group are absorbed into an established, generally larger community. This presumes a loss of many characteristics of the absorbed group. Further, assimilation can be the process through which people lose originally differentiating traits such as dress, speech particularities, or mannerisms, when they come into contact with another society or culture. Finally, assimilation may be voluntary, which is usually the case with immigrants who come to a given country, or forced upon a group, as is usually the case uh, with the receiving of a host group or country. The concept of assimilation we all are familiar with. We can probably think of people we know that were assimilated into the culture. But now let's think in terms of spiritual assimilation. The fact that the church has a distinct identity, identified by God, given to us by God, called out ones, is what the word ekklesia means for church in the Greek. We're to be different, not separatists, but in the people and transforming the culture itself. But instead, often what will happen is that the church becomes assimilated into the culture and you can't tell the difference. That has always, brothers and sisters, been the challenge for the church. Varying levels of success and resistance. Sometimes it has felt and looked like resistance was futile. In other cases, there have been successful examples of the church maintaining its identity and having positive impact. In fact, that happens all over the world at any given time. The church is working and growing as God grows. In fact, understand that the advance of Christ's kingdom, his advance and growth of his church, has always included the great struggle of the church against this issue of assimilation. I want you to think for a moment about the examples of drift uh, that confront us in the biblical history and then even in our history. Drift towards assimilation. I'll think first of Lot in Sodom. You remember Lot wanted to take his family and live in Sodom, this place of wickedness, uh, on multiple levels. It's always identified for one particular sin, but it was sinful across the board. And there he is living in Lot, living in Sodom with his family, and Abraham calls him out because God's going to judge Sodom. Lot very begrudgingly actually leaves, but he does leave. And on his way out, what does his wife do? She looks back. It's not just that she looks back. She looks back with longing that she'd rather be part of that than what God was calling her out of. It's a consistent temptation for the people of God. Israel and Egypt, you remember the long story of God bringing Israel out of Egypt in all these miraculous ways. And almost immediately when they get on the other side of the Red Sea, it's not too soon after that Already the people are complaining how it was better where they were. I mean, they were slaves where they were. They were being killed. They were, they were making the pyramids for all we know. And they say that that was better than their new life called out by God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt, they say to Moses on multiple occasions, to die in the wilderness? This longing for what the world has, to go back to it. How about the conquest of Canaan? Joshua is called to 
exterminate and remove all the people from the land so the people of God could take that land and become a beacon to the world. It wasn't that they were going to be ultimate separatists. It was that they had to start fresh. They had to start new, renew. And instead, they disobey and they don't rid everyone from the land and they become friends with the world. And we read in the book of Judges, I brought you from Egypt and brought you to the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I swear I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. This desire for the world is even given to them as judgment. Constant thorn. The people's demand for a king. You remember all the other nations had a king. God was ruling theocratically, directly. Uh, he had leaders and then he called up judges to save the people out of the oppression that they were experiencing because they had not followed God's command to rid the land of the people. And they cry out saying, we want a king. Why do they say this? Because the other nations have one. That's why we want one. This constant drift towards wanting to be like the rest of the world. It's never ending as a temptation to us. How about even in the study we have so far seen in Hosea? There's this syncretistic worship where it's not that they're irreligious, it's just that they say everything is equal and we'll take Baal and we'll take Asherah and we'll take the God of Israel and we'll put it all together because it's all the same thing. It's this assimilation where there's no identity anymore because it's just all one mixed mess. That's what happens in the life of the northern kingdom. But the same thing happens in the life of the southern kingdom. Judah, some hundred years later, finishes the same path. It says about one king of Judah, Manasseh, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Jeremiah, watching the southern kingdom be taken, by the Babylonians, says, Thus says the Lord concerning his people, they have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Constantly is this battle, this drift towards assimilation in biblical history for the people of God. Certainly we could say it's the same in the time of Christ. Uh, when James is writing his epistle, listen to what he writes. It sounds like he's writing uh, through the mouth of Hosea when he says in James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So it's impossible to avoid this constant theme and drift to the people of God to be assimilated by the world. That's really our ongoing struggle. In fact, if you would look at church history, since Christianity was legalized in the 4th century, there began really a, a thousand-year struggle with an unhealthy intermingling between the church and the various states it was part of, to the point where, by the 13th and 14th century, the church looked more like a corrupted monarchical government than it did a distinct people of God. The credibility of the church was compromised to the point of reformation. Today, for all of its genuine expansion around the world, no doubt there's genuine expansion more than we can even imagine sitting here in America that's happening. Genuine expansion of the church. We struggle in this country, our church in this country, struggles with assimilating into it in such a way that it no longer is distinctive. If it isn't the health and wealth theology that caters to American excesses, it's the giant stadium churches with the smiley, well-groomed, and positive speech-speaking, feel-good pastors that look more like motivational speakers than prophets of God. 
We look just like the world. In fact, we're trying to do our best to make everyone like us, it seems. I think that the church in the United States is largely assimilated already. It's doing its best not to upset the culture. Mainstream theological liberalism certainly did not help. At the turn of the last century, American seminaries in those early 1900s worked hard to blur lines between religious faiths, advocating a modern form of syncretism just like it was in the day of Hosea. You know, just yesterday, a fruit of that was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the highest-ranking Anglican bishop, said that, uh, really, he advocated, if you read closely, that Islamic law be added to the British legal system. That's just within the last two days. But the evangelical church, as I mentioned, instead of asking the question, what does God want, we ask the question, what will bring the people in? Oz Guinness says this, 100 years ago, if you wanted to start a new church, you would have consulted with others in the fellowship and you would have prayed and asked the Lord to guide. Today, you can just run your demographic statistics through, use your telemarketing, and within three months, you can have a booming church. Without realizing it, there is no need for God, and that is the danger. If the church is not growing, we will use marketing. If we are not helping people, we will use psychology and so forth. So, whatever the world has as a tool, let's use it. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the intent is not right or true. It's just that it looks so much like the world anymore, it's very difficult to show the church as distinctive. This is not new. This has been going on since the time God called out the first people. We just have to recognize it. I want you to notice the features of cultural assimilation because they're present in Hosea's day, even in the text we just saw in the text we've been studying. There are several features of cultural assimilation that we can look for. They're just as true today as they were then. The very first one is the issue of unfaithful leadership. When you have unfaithful leadership, it's like a domino effect that these other things come in. In Hosea 4, verse 4, it said, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest, he says. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. So he speaks to the priest. We already know what a problem Hosea is having, what his people's predicament is. And the reason primarily says first is leadership is unfaithful. and The people don't know me now because you have helped to destroy them by the lack of knowledge that you have not imparted to them. So unfaithful leadership is the first feature of cultural assimilation by the church. In chapter 6, this last week we studied as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. So the priesthood was corrupted in that day, and that, of course, would lead to the corruption of the church itself. Now look at the text we're studying today in verse 3, 7, verse 3. By their evil they make, make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. So the people, in their wickedness, are actually complaining complying with the king's wickedness. The king laughs at, if it were, the evilness of the people. This shows you the state of the leadership and the princes by their treachery. So the kings now, the, pri- the princes, we already know the priests, are all together in this unfaithful uh, union of leadership that shows so much of the reasons to why they are assimilating into the culture. Verse 5 in chapter 7 says, On the day of our king, which usually means the the day of coronation that is celebrated every year as an anniversary, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. 
So you have the, the king and the priest just getting into this drunken mess as the celebration in that stretching out his hand with mockers, just carousing with those who would mock God. So unfaithful leadership is a clear feature of a church that assimilates to the world. How do we guard against this? Well, certainly accountability has to be a major part of this. Accountability in our lives and in our doctrine as leaders. I think a plurality of leadership makes good sense as we see that model in the New Testament because any one of us can be corrupt. But together, there's less chance and there's more accountability. There's a plurality and there's a transparency of life. We live in front of you, with you. Nothing to hide. But also accountability and doctrine. I know that for many you may say, boy, that's a big section in the back of your hymnal that you point out as your doctrinal standard. This really, brothers and sisters, is a great protection for you and for us. This gives us standards that we believe uphold the Bible. And so you can know what your pastors think and teach and preach, and you can know what your elders and your deacons must also uphold. This gives us great accountability before you, the people. Unfaithful leadership is certainly something we have observed here in Hosea's day, but let's look also at another feature, the lack of the true knowledge of God. Verse 6 of the fourth chapter says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. There's a lack of knowledge that we see as the core or the root of the problem for the people. They don't know God. Last week, verse 6 of chapter 6, For I desire steadfast love and sacrifice, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, if you're going to bring those things in an empty way to me, I don't want them. I want you to know me in love and knowledge together. Not just knowing the facts or not just having a gushy feeling of love. It's loving knowledge. It's a loving comprehension of your God's personal relationship with you that every person in the body has to have. It's a personal relationship with the God as an adopted son or daughter. It's, it's knowing God in its fullest sense. Not just knowing about God or that there is God, but knowing him personally through Christ. The lack of that true knowledge of God led to further sin and led to becoming more and more friendly with the world. Rather than having a positive effect on the world, it was letting the world take it, take them, take us. There's another feature there you can see in our text, in our book that we're studying, in our text as well, in the 14th verse. There's a lack of repentance when confronted by God. You know, earlier, we re- you might remember God uh, referring to Israel as a stubborn heifer, meaning they just would not listen, no matter how much was said about what they were doing. In the last chapter, chapter 6, What do I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. It's not real. No real repentance. No authentic asking of forgiveness. But look at our text before us today in verse 14, chapter 7. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Now, get this picture. Instead of going to God, knowing their sin and knowing what's going to come, this oppression of the nations, rather than go to God, kind of like a child locks himself up in the room and wails upon their bed. The bed can't help them. The wailing can't help them. That's where they go for their help, though. It's a denial of God's provision of redemption or even his ability to redeem. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. A total lack of repentance. Verse 15, although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. 
It's God who gave them this place in this land, in this wonderful land, and he's the one that put them in the spot they are, but their reaction is to work against, to fight against, to rebel against God. Verse 16, they return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. A treacherous bow. That's the kind of bow that you need, and you need to depend upon to take the prey you need to eat. But it doesn't work. It's treacherous in that it doesn't hit the mark. It cannot be trusted. You hold it, you think it's going to go right, and it doesn't. That's what they are like. They return, but they're not real. They can't be trusted. They're not upward. Their lack of repentance when confronted by God is a great indicator of their slide towards assimilation. And this is important because it's not the issue of their sin, brothers and sisters, that caused God's anger so much. It's the lack of repentance over their sin that caused the anger. God's not shocked when we sin. It's the lack of repentance that brings the anger and wrath of God. Because the lack of repentance shows a lack of trust, ultimately, in God's only provision for forgiveness, which is Christ. Who is Christ? Unrepentance, a lack of repentance, says that I trust myself to go ahead and meet God without any mediator. That's really what it says. I know we don't think that way, but when we come in an unrepented way with a sin, we're saying, I'll go ahead and deny that sin, or I'll say, yeah, that's sin, but I'm going to keep it. It's just basically saying, I'm going to hold on to it and act as though we could stand in the presence of God with that sin owned. That's a lack of repentance. That's what God is confronting here and everywhere where he, re- he re- addresses sin. He never, ever addresses a repentant sinner in this way. It's always an unrepentant sinner that he speaks of in this way. And by the way, the first verse speaking of a physician bringing, coming to heal is very indicative of what's so great about this judgment. I know we may read this and feel a little depressed by what's being said, but for the person who is repentant, this is actually joyous because we have it shown to us, now we can address it. When a physician comes to heal, it's usually after we've been hurting for a while. Very few of us go to the doctor immediately. Uh, say you get some cut that will not heal. That happens consistently enough among people. Usually people will not go in right away after, say, a week it's not healed. They wait a few weeks. They wrap it up. They don't want to look at it anymore because they know whatever's under it's really bad. But they go into the doctor, and the doctor, in probing, coming to heal, has to uncover some stuff. And that doctor sees it and knows what the problem is. And that's what God does as the physician comes to heal. In so doing it, he uncovers the evil that is there. But now that it's uncovered, what's the reaction? Yes, that's true. Thank you for exposing me. I pour myself out before you. I lay upon your righteousness. That's the response that the people of God will have reading this prophecy. Not like, oh boy, God's so bad he's going to get us. It's, God help us, save us. That's what repentance looks like. How do we react when we're confronted with our sin? How does the world react? You've seen what happens in the world. All manner of sin, after time, people just want to make it more and more acceptable. And so instead of repenting when they hear a sin, they, make, they justify it or they even legitimize it. Name all, and every era has a different sin that it tries to legitimize. Every era has done it. We have ones that we think are unique to us, but they're not. They're just that if enough people do them, the church wants to accept them. That's assimilation. See, we, just want, we, we don't want to say what the Bible says about it, because we want them to be with us. Well, are they with us, or are we with them at that point? And who's helping who? The lack of repentance when confronted by God is a clear indicator that we're 
being assimilated. But very vividly, look at verse 8, because we see an outright mixture with the world. Look at this telling verse. Ephraim mixed, mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. There's this imagery of an oven, and the oven just simply means instead of stirring up the ashes or the, the wood that's smoldering inside to keep the, e- the heat evenly distributed, the, the oven stays heated all night with their passions and their lust, and it's as hot as possible. Uh, it, it, this is not what they do. They, they usually will prod it and keep it cooler than it should be if it just stokes. But there's also this analogy with the oven in verse 8. Ephraim is a cake not turned. And it goes hand in hand with the statement that Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. What does it mean? Well, if you put a cake, uh, picture one of those biscuits you get in those biscuit containers, and you put it in an oven like this that has the bottom laced with this burning, smoldering, uh, these, these coals. You put the cake in and you don't ever turn it. So what happens is the bottom gets cooked and actually burnt, and the top stays gooey, but it's still one entity. And that's what... The church looked like in that day. The bottom was burnt and the top was gooey, but it was one thing and it was mixed. It was not one thing holy. It was now indistinguishable as a whole, but yet in its essence was made up of two different things. But it looked the same. It looked like one. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. You know, birds are not smart. I mean, you don't call someone a bird brain to compliment them, right? Hopefully no one calls someone a bird brain, but if one were to, that would mean they're silly and without sense. Why? They call to Ephraim, or call to Egypt and Assyria. See, a dove sits around and makes all sorts of noise, not knowing that the very noise it's making is what calls predators to it. It just makes noise. You watch a dove. That's what they do. Go to Central Park, go to these places, you know, that are known for all the dove. They don't know because there they don't have natural predators, but anywhere else they make that same noise and a predator comes. Well, the same thing is true for Ephraim. They make these calls, and they call to Egypt, and they call to Assyria like they're their friends. But they're really calling predators to themselves who will take them over. They think the world out there is their friend, that they need to make alliance with the world more than with God. They call to Egypt and Assyria because their temporal existence, their temporal survivability is dependent in their mind on Egypt and Assyria liking them. So they reach out to them. And in essence, they're reaching out to the very ones who will devour them. That's their goal, to assimilate them. That's what they're trying to do. A mixture instead of an additive is what the church has become in this day. A mixture, think of a mixture of sugar dissolving in the water or the the drink when you mix it. Instead of an additive like salt, when it's added, it changes the flavor, it preserves, it maintains its own chemical integrity. The church is to be salt, added, applied to culture, Christ applied to culture. We have to engage it. No call for separation here. No call for withdrawal, but a call for distinction. A call for being an additive, not a mixture. And brothers and sisters, that's what our world so desperately needs. And the people failed to do this in this time, as we see so clearly, through these various features that identify their mixture with the world. It says it outright in 7 verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the people's. Well, we have to ask the question, I hope, what might we, the church, Christians, how might we resist cultural assimilation? Well, very simply, we have to say, based on what we've already been studying, that we, the people of God, have to know our God first. First and foremost, we have to know our God. I would summarize it this way. We have to have a worldview that is God's view. That is, we have to be so 
uh, integrated with what God says in his word, that we view the world through a certain set of lenses that help us realize his sovereign reign over every aspect of our life, including our very salvation, our very our sustenance. And our whole life has to be seen through those lenses. Everybody sees through a set of lenses. Our set of lenses, though, has to be a biblical worldview. It has to be a God-revealed worldview. It has to be a Christ-centered worldview. That worldview, I cannot overemphasize enough. That's the key, really, to knowing God. That worldview helps us know how to be rightly related with God. It answers several questions. Who is God? We answer it through what he reveals. What can we as human beings actually know? We have to answer that question. How do we know it? Where did I come from? Who am I? What is my purpose? How shall I live? What should I consider valuable? What is man's chief problem? How can man's chief problem be solved? What is the meaning of history? Why, is all the, why are all these things happening? What is its purpose? Where will I go when I die? You see, your answer to those questions, and every person has an answer to those questions, by the way. Everyone does. Everyone has a worldview. But for the church, it has to be a biblical worldview as revealed by God in his word. We have to know our God. We have to see the, see the world through the lens that God gives us. And I would just encourage us how that the church can avoid assimilation, but rather have effects. It starts with every individual family recognizing the need for this in their own family life. Uh, inculcating in our children from the time they're young a biblical worldview. That they thoroughly understand all these questions and the answers to them. That's how you raise up a generation in a church full of people that understand their distinctives, but also understand how they're called to engage. I can't overemphasize this enough because it's the key. If our worldview is anything other than God's view, our chances, our likelihood, the probability of us being assimilated are far higher. Far higher. Seems like common sense, right? That's why I think in Deuteronomy 6, when addressing the church as a whole, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Make sure, Moses says, that everybody has a biblical worldview in the church. Because the world has no chance of redemption without the church being the church. And so, when the church is the church, that means it's an all-inclusive, hour-by-hour effort to see things the way God sees them, against a counteraction to make us see it as though God didn't do it, or God isn't Lord over it. It's that serious. And as soon as we say, oh, there's not really that much of a battle going on, assimilation's begun. The board got us. As soon as you think there's not a battle out there, there's not two, composing, two opposing worldviews, you're already flipped. The problem will always be not to be utter separatists who stick their head in the sand and don't engage the world. That's the problem. The, where we have to be, salt and light, is a constant dependence on Christ consistently to empower us to have positive change by being the church we're called to be. Just imagine if Israel in this day had that reformation back to what God called them out of instead of assimilating as they did. Every era of God's church will deal with this question. We have to have a biblical worldview through which to interpret and live life. But secondly, in conjunction with this, flowing out of this, I'll say these two more briefly, but they're poignant. We have to start caring more about what God thinks than what the culture thinks. 
At some point, we've got to recognize it's his opinion that counts. Finally, also flowing from these, we have to, as the church, engage culture with and for Christ. Not make alliances with it. You relate with it. You interact with it. You serve in places that allow you to bring that perspective and that presence. Uh, But we don't make alliances with it. We don't say that, okay, that's okay and this is okay too. We have to seek to engage it for Christ. We have to seek to go on to all aspects of it and be there as salt and light and move and, and engage it. And this only comes from a reliance upon God, knowing Him, seeing the world as He has given it to us, as He has given us a certain power, in a sense, to be agents of redemption that He brings. This is really what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Don't apologize for that. That's what we're called to do. That's what the world needs is the redemption that only Christ can give. You're not being elitist by telling people that. You're telling the truth. Maybe the way we tell it is the problem. But certainly not that we should tell it. Every thought captive to obey Christ. As we have worked through this book, we have seen the identity of a people we can certainly relate with. We look all around and see our own temptations in this area. I hope you're encouraged uh, when you consider what it would mean if we would know God as God says we should know Him. The way our forefathers in the faith failed to know Him. That God would give us the grace to know Him in a new way that is just so attractive to people looking. That all the things we work up and concoct to attract, none of them are more attractive than a people who know their God. That's what will bring Him in. A people who know their God. Let us pray. Lord, there is certainly a lot here to consider. I pray that you would help us to really be renewed in our thinking, just about our distinction as a church, as the church. Lord, give us courage. Lord, help us to live out these distinctives. Help us to show forth our knowledge of you in a distinctive way that has the effect of bringing redemption. Lord, we pray for this. Lord, correct us where we are wrong. Correct us where we are arrogant. Correct us where we are sinful in any way we would seek to apply Christ to culture. Lord, that anything I say is not in accordance with your word, with the knowledge of you truly, anything I would say in that way would fall from the listener's ears. They would not hear anything that is not true to your word. And I pray that we would go forth as a people who recognize that knowing their God is the greatest privilege any human being could have. And it's only by your grace that we can know you through Christ. Lord, give us an excitement about this status. Give us an encouragement to share that with others by what we do in our life and also by what we are able to share verbally with people as the subject comes up. Lord, make us a people that are not intimidated by numbers or by cultural flows, but rather are reliant upon you, the one who can slay giants. Thank you, God, for this church, for these brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would just excite them, invigorate them with your power by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's turn in our hymnals to 160.